0: And dear Father, we thank you so much for the care you've provided to this church all through the time we've been together. And in the last week, Father, in my travels, I thank you, Father, that uh, you raise up men who can teach the Bible and that you are always prepared to bring men to, to this pulpit who can divide rightly the word you've given us. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. I thank you, Father, that I traveled safely and I'm back. And I thank you, Father, as well, for the men and women who come and sit and listen and anticipate a a teaching, Father, that will edify them. It's a blessing to a teacher, Father, that there are students. And I thank you, Lord, as well, for what we learn. I thank you for everything we've learned in this study. We have come through so much already, so much left yet to come to, and we thank you for that. And all of these thanks, Father, are not hollow. They're not just because we're supposed to thank you, Father, but because we know that when we study the Bible, good things happen and we anticipate those good things in our life. And sometimes the good things are conviction. Sometimes the good things are correction. Uh, Sometimes those good things, Father, uh, don't feel so good, not at first, but we thank you for them nonetheless, and we especially thank you, Father, for the preparation that you're doing in our hearts for the day that we will face you. And Lord, I ask that you would teach today, as you always do, by your spirit, the hearts who are ready to hear from you, that the teaching, Father, would be according to your will, that what is heard, Father, would be coming from you, and where there is error, Father, that you would erase it and replace it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are now reaching the final major section of this gospel. I hope you've been here from the beginning. Many of you I know have not, and that's fine. We have it online, so consider it homework to catch up. But meanwhile, the section we're now getting into takes us through the final week of Jesus's earthly life before his death. So in the section we're about to enter into, starting in chapter 21, you're gonna study his entry into the city, the Last Supper, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his post appearances to the disciples. On the calendar, everything I just said takes place in a period of barely seven days. And yet in Matthew's gospel, the retelling of it requires a third of the gospel which tells you something about how important and how worthy of careful consideration this material is. So we're going to take our time. Obviously, we've got weeks ahead of us to do this, but it's such an important area, and part of what we're going to do in this study is break it down. Uh, we are going to do a little myth-busting along the way because there is a bunch of tradition in the church associated with the events of this week that is not biblical, and we'll have a chance to see that Uh, We're going to do a timeline. You're going to learn the timeline of this week in hour-by-hour detail. I'm going to have maps. I'm going to have charts. I geek out over this stuff. And I hope you do, too, because, uh, look, if Matthew can devote a third of his gospel to one week out of three years, it tells us we need to spend some time there, too. Now, even before we get to that study, though, there is a brief section at the end of chapter 20 that we still need to cover, and in effect, it bridges us into what we're going to go do in chapter 21. So let's do that section first. And then we'll get a little bit into 21 today. So open your Bibles to chapter 20. We start in chapter 20, verse 29. It says, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men, sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them. And said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, well, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Move with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. All right, now you may remember from the last week or three of teaching that Jesus has been in a place called Perea. Now that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River, present day the nation of Jordan. And in last teaching I did, we had already seen him cross back over to the western side of the Jordan. And in the Jordan Valley now, he's getting ready to go up to Jerusalem by way of a desert road. This will be the last time he goes to Jerusalem alive. And that is before his death. And the road up from the Jordan River Valley will take you by the ancient town of Jericho. As you move from Jericho, that's the last stop before you finally hit Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a few pictures, starting with a map uh, of this area, because I think it's helpful to see what he's doing So if you look on this screen, you'll see that there is Jericho sitting out there in the Jordan River Valley as you come up from the Jordan. And as you go up through this desert terrain, you eventually wind your way up through mountains and valleys to a couple of little towns called Bethpage and Bethany on into the eastern side of Jerusalem. Now Jericho is set up in a mountainside, set up against the side of the mountain range there that borders the Jordan River Valley. So this is a picture of what the road looks like. That's the road. That's about halfway or a little little past Jericho into the mountains, uh, but that's uh, the kind of road you're talking about, a, a windy road up through the wadis, the canyons that mark that territory. And go a little further, that's modern Jericho, or a part of modern Jericho, set up against the hillside there. And uh, it, that road that Jesus is now taking first passed through Ancient Jordan, because there's actually two Jericho's in his day. The ancient Jericho of the Old Testament times is the one you read about in Joshua. That's the one where the walls fall down, etc. Now, by Jesus' time, it was still in ruins. Uh, In fact, it's obviously still in ruins today. Uh, These are pictures of the ancient town of Jericho. I'm going to back up. There's the sign that greets the ruins, says oldest city in the world. So funny, uh, Damascus also says it's the oldest city in the world. So. No one's around to verify that, right? So anyway, here's where the tourists park, and then you see the ruins in the foreground there, and then you get a better look at them next. Uh, They've been excavated to a certain point, but that's the Jericho of Joshua's day, or what's left of it. Uh, In Jesus' day, it was also in ruins, and then there was a second Jericho that stood about a mile away. This one had been built, built by Herod the Great in Jesus' time, Herod had a palace, a summer palace in Jericho, and he he put his palace there, and then the town built up around it. So in Jesus' day, there were these two Jerichos separated by about a mile. Now today, there's a third Jericho because you also have modern Jericho which spreads all the way out down toward the Jordan River itself. So uh, in Matthew's account, what we see, and we can turn that off, thank you. In Matthew's account, Jesus has passed by the old Jericho that's in ruins, And he is now approaching Herod's Jericho, which is the one of their day, the the one that was uh, inhabited in that day. By the way, that's why if you look at some of the gospel accounts, you'll see some of the writers say he is leaving Jericho, and Matthew says he's approaching Jericho. It's because he's between the two of them. Anyway... Matthew says that as he goes along this road, there is these two men on the side of the road begging for Jesus to give them mercy, two blind men. Now the other Gospel writers only mention one of these guys. In fact, Mark names him as Bartimaeus. I think Bartimaeus gets named and the other ones and the second guy gets ignored, simply because it may be that Bartimaeus was the more insistent, the, the more vocal of the two. In any event, they hear that Jesus is approaching, and so they begin to cry out loudly for Jesus to give mercy. They call him Lord, Son of David. You remember that term? Last time we heard that term was back in chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12, that's when Jesus healed the man who was with a mute demon and the crowd saw that happen and said, this cannot be the son of David, can it? Well, that term always refers to the Messiah's role as the king who will rule over the throne of David in the kingdom. So in effect, what they're declaring is, here comes our king, King Jesus, the king over Israel. And because they're yelling this out, there are some in the crowd who get very uncomfortable with that. Matthew says in verse 31 that some in the crowd were telling them sternly to be quiet. The word sternly in Greek is, is the word for rebuke. So they're rebuking them. Shut up. Stop, stop, stop saying that. Now, why are they so upset? Well, Luke gives us a little more detail. Luke tells us in Luke 18:39 that those who led the way were sternly telling them to be quiet. And by led the way, what he means is this. You have to remember, this scene is taking place near the home, one of the homes of King Herod, the king of Israel. And as these people approach, Luke says, the ones that were leading the crowd, so you imagine this stretched out group of people, Jesus somewhere in the middle, probably. And the ones who are at the very front are the first to hear this. They're gonna be the first ones to walk into King Herod's city, which is just around the corner. And they're thinking to themselves, I don't think it's a good idea for us to walk in with everyone yelling, King Jesus. That's not a good sign. And so they're telling these people, shush, stop, that's not good. That's not gonna help us here. They're a little nervous. And you see the men in response do what? Well, I'm gonna yell louder then. And they start yelling even more for Jesus. They're doing it out of desperation. And can we blame them? I mean, these guys are, are sitting on the side of the road blind and they hear their one opportunity for sight coming by and all everyone else is worried about is whether Herod's gonna be upset. You know, being blind is never easy, and of course, I don't say that from experience, but I don't think it's hard to imagine how it's hard to be blind. But in that day, it was an especially terrible fate. Blind were unable to work, for the most part, and so as a result, the Jewish society viewed a blind person as worthless, as a burden on society. And then to make matters worse, you have the Pharisees teaching that if you were born blind, it was a result either of your own sin or of the sin of your parents, which made it easy for the society to justify being care- uh, uh, completely careless of the, of the individual, showing no pity, uh, giving them no support. After all, it's their own fault. And so as a result, the blind were uh, limited to begging for the most part, for subsistence. And because they couldn't see, they were vulnerable. They were vulnerable to anything and anyone. They could be cheated or abused by strangers if they weren't ignored. And then you have wild animals, you have exposure to the elements. Uh, It's just a terrible way to live because they couldn't see. So I think it's understandable their persistence here, their, their desperation. This is a moment that could define the difference between life and death for them. And the other crowd, the crowd's just worried about Herod. So they keep asking Jesus for healing. But then there's that, Chapter 12 moment, we still remember, don't you? Where Jesus has healed the man that had the mute demon, the crowd said, oh, this is the son of David. To which the Pharisees replied, no, he's doing that with the power of Satan. At which point the nation of Israel, that crowd in in general, agreed with that consideration. They, They sided with the Pharisees and they said, yeah, I guess he's just doing this through some kind of trick. And as they did that, they committed the unpardonable sin. And as a result, that generation of Israel forever lost the kingdom. It was not set up in their day because of that rejection. And as we saw when we studied that, it had another effect. It also had the effect of changing Jesus' earthly ministry from that point forward. He no longer healed crowds indiscriminately. He would only heal those who expressed faith first. That's the change we saw in chapter 12. And he's been following that pattern more or less ever since. So here we have this moment now with another man saying, or two men actually, saying they would like to be healed. And Jesus now has a test, right? Is he going to heal them or not? And it comes down to whether they have faith or not. So the question for us is, can we see in this uh, situation some evidence that these men have faith? Because that's going to drive what Jesus does. Well, I think in their pronouncement of him as Lord and of him being the Messiah, son of David, in spite of the threats from Herod, that gives us some reason to think that they're certainly men of faith. And as we go further in the story, we find another detail, this time from Mark, which confirms this assessment. Mark describes the moment this way. In Mark ten forty nine, it says, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. I think it's funny that the same crowd that a moment ago was telling the guy to shut up, now they're like, oh, he wants you, go, it's fine, everything's cool. Anyway, Bartimaeus stands up, and as he does, Mark says, he casts aside his cloak. Now that is a very interesting and telling gesture. Because in ancient times, a cloak was an indispensable piece of attire for a common man and certainly these guys are common a cloak was the most important possession you owned it's hard for us to appreciate this but a cloak in that day protected you from cold from rain it was a shield against the sun it was your cocoon in the moment of a sandstorm it was your blanket at night and in desperate times it could be sold for shelter or for a meal remember when the the guards are throwing lots for Jesus's clothing that's how much it was worth it was worth gambling for. So you don't cast a cloak aside casually, and especially if you're blind. Because if a blind man casts anything aside in the midst of a crowd, he's not going to find it again. And I'm not saying that because he doesn't know where it is. No, I'm talking about the fact that the moment the cloak leaves his hands in the midst of a crowd, somebody in that crowd is going to pick that thing up because they know he's never going to get it back. First of all, he's helpless to stop them. He can't identify them. He can't even identify his own property. There's no recourse for him, and he would know that. So a blind man would hold on to anything he valued, like his life depended on it, because he wouldn't see it again. But not Bartimaeus. He casts aside his cloak at the thought that he's going to go see Jesus. And that suggests very strongly that he was expecting that his eyesight was gonna be restored, and as such, he could go find his cloak, or he'd get another one. He didn't care at that point, eyesight being all-important. It suggests that he had absolute confidence and faith that what was about to happen was gonna meet his expectations. So that to us is a, firm con- uh, a f- confirming point to know this man had faith. Later, we're gonna see Jesus himself confirm that in Mark 10, 52, when he says, go, your faith has made you well. Verse 32 of Matthew, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want you to give me my eyesight. It's because he's not said that yet. Everything he said on the road was, have mercy, have mercy. So Jesus says, be more specific. And then, because of his faith, Jesus heals him. You know, the connection here between having faith and receiving something from Jesus, and particularly in this case, a healing, that's a clearly evident pattern in the last half of Jesus' earthly ministry. Made so, made necessary because of Israel's rejection. But look, we need to be careful with what we do with that truth in our day. And by that I mean this. It is true, that faith is a prerequisite for receiving blessing with our relationship with Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 11.6. He says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So without faith it's impossible to please God, the writer says, and our faith includes an expectation that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But at times, that reward may be physical healing. I'm not one of those people who would tell you that God can't heal us supernaturally. Far from it. I'm sure it happens, and I'm sure it happens relatively frequently for those who need it. I'm not one of those who would say it's not possible. But I'm telling you this because that truth can be distorted. That is the truth that Jesus will heal us when we ask him. That truth can be distorted, and it can be manipulated, and in effect, made into a lie. Generally speaking, Faith is a prerequisite for pleasing God and for receiving reward. But friends, just because you have to have faith before you receive blessings from the Lord as a child of God, that does not mean that if you have faith, you will get healed. All right, there's a difference between those two statements. We all die eventually. Therefore, we are all not healed eventually. Eventually. And I don't know why that's so hard for some people to understand. That, that fact escapes people because there are those who would tell you that if you have faith, God will heal you, period. And that if you're not being healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith, period. Which would then mean that every single Christian dies without faith because we all die eventually, which means we all didn't get healed eventually. It's a nonsensical position to take. The truth is that it's a good thing, a good thing for the Christian when your body dies, Is a good thing. I'm not saying the process is good. I'm not saying the timing is always what we want. I'm not saying we don't mourn the loss of those we love. Of course, all of that is true too. But for the Christian who dies, it's a good thing. You have left a very bad situation, relatively speaking, and joined a perfect situation. As you've heard me say before, for the believer, this life is as bad as it will ever be. And the next life is great. For the unbeliever now, this life is as good as it will ever be. And the next is very bad. But if you're a believer, death is not your enemy. That is in the sense that death ultimately leads you to something much better and it's a necessity. Eventually, we all go through it. That being the case, there's nothing wrong with wishing for healing in the meantime. I mean, why should we necessarily want to go through something painful or uncomfortable? We shouldn't. And when God is inclined to do it, he will heal us. But be wary of any teaching that suggests to you that God will always heal, or that if you don't get the healing you want, it's your fault that you've done something wrong, your, your faith is insufficient, you didn't pray the right way, or whatever. Saying that God always heals the Christian when we have faith is the equivalent of trying to push on a rope. What I mean by that is this, a rope only works in one direction. It's good for pulling. It doesn't work if you push. And similarly, faith is necessary for pleasing God and receiving reward. But it only works in one direction. That is, you cannot turn that formula around on God and declare that because I have faith, you must always heal me. That faith pushes on God to force a certain outcome. That is not true. Faith is necessary to receive blessing, but it is not sufficient to receive blessing. It also requires God's will to bless you in some particular case. And here's the truth. Not healing you at the end of your life is the best blessing you'll ever get. Because if you were to be healed indefinitely, you'd be a 250-year-old prune living a miserable life on a sinful earth. Not the best outcome. Right? I know that sounds great. Live forever. Yay. No. Once you get to the other side, you'll be like, gosh, why didn't I die earlier? All right. So self-evidently, God is not always healing people. And therefore, we have to be careful about teaching that suggests otherwise. Jesus was very specific in his application during this particular period of his ministry because it was in keeping with a larger goal, that is, of only appealing to those who knew him and rejecting those who didn't because of what had happened at that earlier moment. Moving on and back to our text, Matthew has now given us this little moment at the end of chapter 20 as a bridge into what comes next, and here's why. Because this moment when two men on the side of the road yell, Son of David, to Jesus, actually foreshadows what's about to happen in a much bigger way in chapter 21. Because in a very short time, a few hours from this moment, Jesus is going to be met by hundreds, maybe thousands of people along a roadside, the same road, but now at the point where it leads from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and into the east gate of Jerusalem. And those people will be declaring, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, declaring their king arriving in Jerusalem, and they presume to rule. But like these guys, the rules are still there. That is to say, they can declare him son of David, the king. That doesn't mean he's going to sit on his throne. He's coming for a different purpose. And that crowd that will celebrate his arrival doesn't understand what he's actually arriving for. And the rejection having happened already means that he isn't coming to reign and he is not coming to set up the kingdom. He's coming with a very different purpose. And the purpose that he's coming for is what we study next at the beginning of this section. And it guides everything that happens from chapter 21 through chapter 28. The purpose is to fulfill the Passover. Chapter 21, verse one. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "'Go into the village opposite you, "'and immediately you will find a donkey tied there "'and a colt with her. "'Untie them and bring them to me. "'If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, "'The Lord has need of them.' "'And immediately he will send them.' "'This took place to fulfill what was spoken "'through the prophet. "'Say to the daughter of Zion, "'Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle.'" And mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. All right, well, this is now the start of this final section, as I called it, that takes us all the way to the end of the book. And it's his entry into Jerusalem, coming from the east. The east side of the city is marked by a a series of mountains and ranges. I'm gonna go back to a map, if we can turn it back on for a moment. I'm gonna go back to this map. You notice The road kind of winds up uh, from the plains into the foothills and then eventually into a very mountainous region. Let's take a better look at that. What I'm gonna do is turn this sideways a little bit and gives you a chance to see it in a three-dimensional way. And as you notice, you're kind of going up hills, down valleys, up hills, down valleys. The last hill before you reach Jerusalem is the one that Bethphage sits on. That is the Mount of Olives, directly east of the city. Uh, If you've been to Israel, you know, obviously you've seen this. It's it's relatively close when you look at it from Jerusalem. Uh, But it's very steep and deep. And this is the point at which Jesus is now coming down the road into the uh, valley we call Kidron, and then up into the east gate of the city. And before he gets into that valley, as he sits on that first mountain range, Bethphage, he says to his disciples, go into Bethphage looking for uh, a donkey. Now, he gives them explicit instructions on what to do, where to find it. He says, not only are you going to find this donkey, you're going to find the donkey and her uh, foal. Colt and a foal together is coal, just for anybody's. <laughs> but the mom and the baby are tied up. And he says, even if someone asks you, now this is kind of interesting because you would imagine this could actually, would actually happen, right? If you start grabbing somebody else's property, they're gonna ask. And sure enough, he says, when they ask you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord has need of it. And they're just gonna immediately let you take it when you say that. By the way, that's the only time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus calls himself by Yahweh, Lord. All right, so Mark, by the way, if you go to Mark's gospel, he says it happened just like this. Matthew didn't tell us the whole story, but Mark says they went in, they found him, they started to untie him. The crowd says, hey man, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And the crowd's like, okay, cool. And everything's fine, they walk out with him. And as strange as all of this sounds to us, I mean, it's obviously supernatural, but even still, it's not that unusual. What I mean by that is this, that just as today we have rent-a-car services it was common to have rent a donkey services or rent a mule or something in that day as well because if you look at the terrain people who were coming into Jerusalem didn't look forward to the walk again if you've been there you know how steep the terrain is that we're talking about but that terrain is it's it's remarkably steep i mean you get tired pretty quickly especially if you've been walking a long distance so it was very common in that day in, in near major cities especially Jerusalem For people to start renting out their animals, and by the way, if you've ever been to Petra, Petra is very steep, and if you go to Petra, they have donkeys there for rental. They'll let you get on one and they'll walk you up the mountain on the donkey. Same idea. And so, as a result, riding a donkey was not associated with poverty. It's not associated with degradation, or or you know, sometimes we get a sense that it made Jesus look too lowly. That's not exactly true. It was not unusual for a dignitary to ride a donkey into a city. Horses were extremely rare, and they were generally reserved only for war. So uh, you, you only rode a horse when you were making a threat, when you were trying to impress somebody as a conqueror. And so mules and donkeys, they were associated with peace. So a king or a prince would often ride a donkey into a town as a gesture of peace, not as a gesture of aggression. And you may remember Solomon rode a donkey to his coronation in 1 Kings. So it's not like we have to look at this as Jesus trying to be extra humble. Yes, he was humble, and the text says that he would come in gently, but that means he would come in without a threat, that is, on a donkey, not a horse, all right? And Luke tells us, if you go to Luke's gospel, that the foal, the baby that was being taken with the mother, had never been sat upon by anyone before that moment. And so what that tells us is Jesus was getting a a -a rent-a-mule with zero miles on it, (laughs) brand new, it still had that, rent, that new mule smell, and, which, by the way, is not much better than the old mule smell. But anyway, in Jesus' day, when you, saw some, when, when you reserve something for royal use, you never dedicated it to common use. There was a distinction there. So what we're hearing is that the animal had never been rid upon because, as royalty, Jesus needed an animal that had never been put to common use before in keeping with his position. So, all of what we just see going on here is obviously a provision of the father for his son, which tells you that God had been working well ahead of time to put all of this together. The sovereignty of God in this is so evident. It's a simple little moment, and yet as you sit there and you think about it, which is the kind of thing I do, it, you just realize, well, what had to go into that moment? I mean, consider all the things that had to happen for God to make sure that that moment could happen when it needed to happen. I mean, you had to have the cult cold, the, the cold, uh, birth at the right time in the right place. And even then, that mother had to be birthed at the right time, in the right place. I mean, how far back does that go? And then the owner had to live in the right place and tie them up at the right time. And everything else about the crowd had to be prepared in their hearts so that they were ready to say yes when someone says, oh, the Lord wants it. Oh, sure, that's a good reason, take it. All of that had to be in the process of how long before. I mean, we don't have to, you know, you think about it, too much, and you just get, you know, your mind starts to spin, but the point is obvious, right? This is such an obvious display of God's sovereignty, and here's the thing. He doesn't just do this once in a while. This is all the time. You've heard people talk about the, the strange little stories of a butterfly dies on this side of the earth and it creates a tsunami on the other side of the earth or something like that. What, what that's trying to say is you can't separate any action in the world from any other action because eventually things change, touch other things and that eventually Uh, works its way to something else. And so one person's decision today, whether or not they leave their house, turn left or right at a certain corner, go into a store or not, changes who they meet, what happens after that and what happens after that, and it's it's absolutely inseparable from every other event on earth if you go far far enough with the chain of reactions, right? Who's controlling all that? (laughs) I'll give you one guess. And the fact that God works at that level is indisputable when you look at even just something as simple as this, because any number of things could have changed in the lives of any of the people involved such that those donkeys wouldn't have been there, those decisions wouldn't have been made, and what would have happened to God's plan? And yet there was never a doubt that that was gonna happen because God said it was gonna happen. And when you think about this, people sometimes run to these statements like, well, God doesn't make us into robots, we still have our free will, yeah, yeah, we may not be robots, but God's got the remote control. You need to understand that even though we have will and we appear in our head to be making our own decisions, everything happens according to God's will. People who make their personal choices in their own way for their own desires included those people with the donkey and the mule and everything else, and yet God turns their hearts to move them to the place he wants to get the outcome that he wants. Behind the scenes, God is always moving hearts and heads to achieve specific outcomes. That's what makes him God. And he's doing it all the time. And his sovereignty over every detail on earth and every action that you take and every action anyone else takes, by the way, is why you can trust this. Right? If he doesn't have that level of control, why do you think anything he says about the future will happen? There's a line in a Christian song from years ago that I liked that says, He cannot control the end if he does not control the means to the end. It's, in, it's, it's incontrovertible. If he does not control everything that brings about the outcome, then he can't tell you what the outcome's gonna be with certainty. God is in control, and that is, a, that is a powerful and ultimately comforting truth for any Christian who understands it. There is no such thing as, you've got this ring of control, and God is over here in his ring of control, and we each have our little place to play. No, if you understand God's sovereignty, you start drawing this circle around your body, saying, oh, God's got all of that stuff But inside this circle, these are my responsibilities. God leaves this to me. You know, the more you study this, the smaller that little circle gets until you're standing on a dot and you're not even sure it's there because that's the truth. Now, that does not absolve our responsibility, nor does it mean that our sin is not our own fault. It doesn't say that God is responsible for everything that we do. It says God is responsible for every outcome that results because he works our mistakes into his plan. That is the meaning of Romans 8, 28. He turns all things to good. You know, if he isn't already bad, you can't turn it to good. The point is God takes what he gets, which is sin, and he puts it to work in his own way to get what he wants at the end of it all. So you've, you can see a moment like this in two ways. You can see it as a statement of God's sovereignty and also an example of God's provision. You know, you've heard people say maybe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That comes from Psalms 50. Have you ever heard that? You know what that means, basically, why people quote it? They're basically saying that God owns everything in the universe, it's all his, and therefore it's an encouragement to know he can give us what we need when we need it, because he can move it. And everything in the universe belonging to God means he puts it all to work in ways that he desires. So in this case, some guy, I'm assuming, some man, owned these animals, right? And yet, they were God's property. And as a result, he made the decision that his son would have those mules, when the, or donkeys, whatever they were, at the time that they received him. And time and time again, that's what he's been doing for his son. You know, Jesus lived his entire earthly ministry owning nothing. You ever wondered about that? How does he provide for himself? He didn't work. I mean, he had no regular income. How does this guy get three years of life with no income? Well, you know, coins come out of the mouths of fish and people give him meals. And he went from day to day to day having everything he needed, nothing more, always provided for him because God was doing that work to ensure that Jesus had what he needed. I often wonder what the disciples thought about those three years when they looked back on that. How did we get through those three years? But they did. God owns everything ultimately, so when Jesus needed something, God moved it into his path. And you're going to see that happen again. They're about to sit down at a Passover meal, which Jesus will tell his men has already been prepared for them in some room in some city. There's going to be an empty room someone set up for the Passover and walked away from. Well, why did they do that? I don't even know what they were thinking. Somehow they thought we should do this. God made it happen. That is not different for you and me. There is no difference between us and Jesus in that respect. None. That is, nothing you own is truly yours. You merely possess it for a time. God's allowed you to have it pass through your hands. So you need to think of every possession you own as something like a book you borrow from the library. Because that's very much the truth. You've checked it out. You possess it for a time. You enjoy it for a time. Good for you. Eventually, it goes back to the library. Whether you give it away, whether someone takes it away, whether it falls apart, or whether you die and leave it to somebody, it's not yours forever. It's going to someone. And after you're gone, it's back in the library. Somebody else checks it out. They get to enjoy it. So while it may have felt like yours for a time, it wasn't forever. I would encourage you to approach your possessions with that kind of understanding because it's the truth. It's not just some perspective. It's the truth. Your needs have been met by God and you possess something for a time, but it belongs to God. And when we truly need something, You should have confidence to know the Lord is going to give it to you, and usually just in the nick of time. Not early, and usually after a period of worry where you wondered if it would ever show up. I mean, he just commonly does this, and I am not saying he provides to you supernaturally, and I'm also not saying that if you put your butt on the couch all day long and do nothing, things are going to magically show up in your lap. That's not the point. Jesus didn't sit at home and do nothing. He was out moving and working and and doing as the Lord commanded that he do, and he was met with provision as he moved. We aren't in a position to sit around and just dare God to provide for us when we do nothing. That's not biblical. But neither should we make our life about the pursuit of possessions because now we've got the wrong target. God will provide. He does it in surprising ways, usually in the nick of time. And if you have patience, you're gonna see what he does. And it's an amazing building of your faith because when you do receive the things that he provides, whatever they are, hold on to them loosely, knowing that they're not yours for very long. They remain the Lord's possessions. He's given them to you for a while. One day he's going to ask you to pass them on to somebody else. Here's my suggestion. You can pass them on to someone else while you're alive, or you can pass them on to someone else after you die. You get credit for the first one. Now, you might say, well, I can always will everything I have to Steve, and I take it, and I put in a good word for you. But look, I don't think that's the best solution. I think the better solution is to let go of it while you can still respond to the Spirit's leading and do it in a way that's helpful. I'm not saying you're supposed to give everything away today or tomorrow or whatever. I'm saying as the Lord leads you, think about these things as passing through your hands, not as a collection that you get to you know, claim for your own at the end, and the one who dies with the most toys wins. That's not the goal of the Christian life. And look, if you live with this outlook, that is an outlook that appreciates the sovereignty of God, his universal ownership of everything, and his desire and capacity to give you what you need when you need it, if you live like that, two things happen. First, you're gonna spend a lot less time worrying about possessions. And look, let's be honest, we all spend way too much time and energy focused on the gaining of and the maintaining of possessions. Possessions. I once did this, and I won't do it again today, but I once did this little analysis of my own where I thought, what time involvement is there in owning anything? Pick a single object in your life from the, the researching of it, the thinking about it, the financing of it, the buying of it, the cleaning of it, the maintaining of it, the insuring of it, the worrying about it, the replacing of it, the repairing of it. The, and it just, you realize, how do I have time left to breathe? Because all I'm doing is worrying about my possessions at some point. And that's a waste of life. At the end of the day, if that's what your life amounts to, it's a complete waste of your life, or at least that aspect of it. And second thing that's gonna happen, you're gonna get free from that if you can live without that focus on possession. Secondly, if you wait for God to provide what you need rather than sort of making your life a goal of finding what you want, your faith is gonna grow tremendously in that dependence on God. Because nothing builds your faith faster than recognizing how little you need, number one, Number two, how much you depend on God for. I think in our Western mindset, in our industrial developed world, we've gotten away from the thought of being dependent on God because we assume that your paycheck is what you're depending on or that savings account that gets you through retirement is what you're depending on. You wanna see how quickly that can go away, read the book of Job. That is not something you should be depending on. God gave you that, you can take it away, but you're no less dependent on God. You wanna feel dependent on God? Lose your job. Those people suddenly feel dependent on God. And I had a missionary friend one time who was working in Africa, and of course, like most missionaries, he was living off support, didn't have much, in a difficult situation. And he would tell me stories of how much he was blessed in that dependence. And then he turned it around on me in a way that I didn't expect. And he said, you know, the people who live in our world, out here, he says, you guys are missing out. You're missing out the chance to understand what it feels like to be dependent on God and the blessing that comes from that. He was so aware of his dependence because every day there was some challenge in his life, he would tell me the stories, where he didn't have what he needed to get through that day in some specific sense and then God would show up in miracle after miracle. Little moments that you can't attribute to anything but God doing like what he did for Jesus with the donkey. Things like somebody says, hey, I feel like you need this, take it. Why did you feel that way? I don't know. That would happen over and over again. He got to the point where he just expected that all the time. He just lived like Jesus. Every day, wake up, honey, we don't have this. Oh, well, it'll happen, and it would happen. What does that do to your faith? You know, where do you start looking for your your support? It's living as close to Jesus' lifestyle as you can get, and I'm not saying that's the lifestyle we all go to. What I'm saying, though, is to the extent we can back off from this sense of dependence on culture, society, technology, and the like, and get to a place where these men were where the next day is really in God's hands, you might find yourself living a life that is far more enjoyable than you ever imagined. I wonder sometimes if we've constructed a life that we think is good, because we've never tried the alternative. So expect the Lord to provide. Two things that come out of this, you will spend less time worrying about possessions and you'll spend more time enjoying your relationship with Jesus. All right, now, moving on to the bigger question maybe. Why does Jesus need to ride a donkey? And He's been walking for three years. All of a sudden, I need a donkey. Well, Matthew gives you the answer, verses four and five. He quotes from Zechariah nine, because in Zechariah nine, nine, Israel was told that when their Messiah came, he would arrive as their king, but in a humble fashion, riding on a colt, in peace, on a juvenile donkey. And the coming of Messiah is intentionally humble and peace-driven at this point, not conquering, not as a king, because as I said earlier, the point of this entry is not to set up the throne, it's not to start the kingdom, that still awaits for us even to today. The point of his entry is to fulfill the Passover, and we're gonna go through this now, starting with this next section, and then in the weeks to come, through the rest of this, we're gonna go through the events of this week from that perspective. How is Jesus fulfilling the Passover? And there are a ton of misconceptions about this week. I find it funny often how quickly we have to rethink the whole week when we study it properly. The timeline alone is wrong. Uh, Jesus doesn't die on a Friday. And there are some other things in the text that are wrong, that as you get into the text, you're like, why do we ever have this come up? Well, because tradition is often what we fall back on when we don't read our Bible. So we're gonna study carefully here on the details to come. And as he enters into this city on the first day of the week, Sunday, this is what you're gonna find happening. Here's an overview. Mark says Jesus arrives at the temple late on that Sunday. This is the same day that he healed the blind man, the same day that he gets the donkey, rides down into the city. We haven't studied that moment yet, You know, with the palm branches and all of that. We'll get to there in a week to come. But from that point, he goes into the city, goes directly to the temple. But Mark says it happens so late in that day that he doesn't spend much time there. He does a little look around, and then he leaves again, goes back the way he came, and spends the night in Bethany. That was one of the little towns on that map. Following that Sunday night, Jesus goes back to the temple each of the next three days for part of each of those days. So that's Monday. Tuesday, and Wednesday. And over those days, he will teach in the temple grounds. And while he's there, he will be interrogated by various religious leaders who come into the temple, they know he's there teaching, they see the, the support that he's gaining from the crowd, and they try to discredit him while they're there. And they throw these tests at him. You remember some of these, which we're gonna study, right? If a woman has seven husbands and they die, which one will be her husband in heaven? Or, you know, who should we pay? Should we give our, our, our money to Caesar or not? You know, give to Caesar what is Caesar. All of that moment is still coming. Those are moments that happen in the temple grounds during these days. So for four days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Jesus spends at least some of each of those days in the temple, in the house of God. And why is he doing this? Because he's fulfilling the requirement of the Passover. Do you remember in Exodus when the Lord gave Israel the Passover feast? He tells them that they have to select a lamb. And this is what he tells them. Exodus twelve three. He says, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, They are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbors nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. And your lamb shall be unblemished, male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So the month we're talking about here is the first month of their calendar year under the Exodus rules of the law. So that's Nisan, used to be a different month, became Nisan in the Exodus. And on the 10th of Nisan, they are to take a lamb. A household is to keep a lamb that they have set aside for their purposes. This will be the lamb they eat at Passover, but we're still days away from Passover. So on the 10th, you take it into your home. And then for four days, you inspect that lamb. I mean, what else are you gonna do with it? It's in the house, you, got, you gotta Wait. So they just use the time to make sure that this is in fact an unblemished lamb because that's the requirement. And after the fourth day, on the 14th of the month, the animal having been confirmed as spotless, it is now sacrificed at twilight on that fourth day and consumed that evening and all of it is to be gone before sunrise the next morning. If it's not all eaten, they burn what is left over with fire. Now we know from John's gospel that Jesus is our spotless lamb, the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world, right? Everybody knows that. But did you notice he too must be inspected for four days in the household? Of course, where's Jesus' household? It's the house of God. It's the temple. And the inspection that he undergoes is that of the religious leaders. The Sunday that he enters in, Palm Sunday as we typically call it, that Sunday is the 10th of Nisan in the week that he died. And he walks into the temple on the 10th And of course, he's not a real lamb. Of course, it's not a real house. So he doesn't live there 24 hours a day, but he is there every day. And for four days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he goes in and out and he submits himself to the inspection of the chief priests and of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And of course, that process leads to the Assessment that he is truly spotless, for none of their accusations stick, none of their critiques are valid. And so at the end of that fourth day, Wednesday, he leaves the temple for the last time, a free man. That night, he spends his evening first with his disciples in the upper room, having their Passover meal at twilight, as is required. And then he retires to Gethsemane for that evening. He prays, he's eventually arrested. He's taken back into the city in the early morning hours of Thursday. He is tried three different times before he's finally handed over to Pilate on the early morning hours of Thursday. He's on the cross by 9 a.m. on Thursday. He is off the cross dead by 3 p.m. on Thursday in the grave before sundown on Thursday. Thursday night, Friday morning, Friday night, Friday morning, Saturday night, and uh, or Saturday day, Saturday night, he is in the grave six days and six nights, uh, three days and three nights, a total of six periods, and he's up before sunrise on Sunday, just as the scriptures require. Every single detail in this account will fulfill not just the Passover feast as we started here, but ultimately the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits, all of which happen in quick succession over that week on the Jewish calendar. Everything that's happening there is a fulfillment of those three feasts, as in the purpose of the feasts, and the timing of the events are gonna be perfectly matched to the criteria of those feasts, and every detail of his life is gonna match up against these things and the treatment that he faces. What's so ironic is that as he's going through this as the true Passover lamb, meanwhile, in the background, Israel is going through their normal Passover celebration with the symbols of the very same thing. So we're gonna study all of that in detail over the next several weeks and months. And we're gonna trace it through. As we do, you're gonna see the sovereignty of God. You're gonna see the purpose in it, obviously. You're gonna see how God moves hearts, men who had no idea what they were doing, from Pilate to Judas to the chief priest to everyone else involved. They're all playing a part in a drama that God himself has authored, and they're all gonna do exactly what God wants, exactly when he wants it to happen, exactly according to a feast schedule that was set thousands of years earlier. Not a detail will be missed. Tell me about God's sovereignty. And in the middle of all of this, in chapters 24 and 25, we will also study the single most important discourse that Jesus ever gives on the subject of end times. So that's just a little bonus on top of everything else. So I'm encouraging you, don't miss this stuff. If you can't be here every week, and I know we can't, hear it online, but don't miss it. There's a lot yet coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your sovereignty, for the confidence that it gives us to trust in your word and to follow the spirit. For Father, if you know all and have deemed all to be according to your providence, then we can fall into your arms and let you run our lives. For Father, you do whether we let you or not. How much better is it to trust in you rather than to worry about things that were outside our control? All we are asked to do, Father, is to read your word and obey it. And I pray, Father, that would be our heart's intent. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement and for all that we will learn in the weeks to come. Bring us here as often as we can come, Father. Help us to see these things with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.